Are you ready to be the change you want to see in the world? Are you ready to make choices that have a positive impact on your daily life, your community, and the planet? You are in the right place. I'm Anne-Therese Gennari. And I'm Robin Shaw. And this is the Hate Change Podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Climate Optimist Masterclass. I'm so excited to share with you that the Climate Optimist Masterclass is now available on theclimateoptimist.com. Get access to all eight classes, which you can take at your own speed, so you can transform climate anxiety and overwhelm into empowerment and meaningful action. This masterclass consists of eight one-hour-long classes that are educational, inspiring, actionable, and full of joy. I know because I took this class when it was offered live. We learned about the psychology of change, how to trigger our happiness hormones to fuel our climate action, the difference between a stakeholder and shareholder economy, what it means to practice conscious leadership, and so much more. This is a critical time in human history. The time for us to act is now. Anne Therese created the Climate Optimist Masterclass to bring more of us to this work. And she shows us that this work can be full of optimism as we create a better world together. Go to theclimateoptimist.com to learn more and remember that together we can change the world. Hey guys, welcome back to Hey Change Podcast and actually to the last episode of 2021. I can't believe this year is over already, almost over. Uh, it's been quite a ride and it's been so fantastic and fun to have Robin Shaw as my co-host. Robin, how are things on your end? Things are going amazingly well. We are getting ready for a big trip. We're going to be going to Costa Rica for four months. And I'm also participating in a rally tomorrow, which when this episode comes up will have already happened. But we are going to make sure that all kids are safe in school because in the district that I currently live in, in Ontario, there are just mounting reports of gender-based violence and race-based hate and um, awful bullying for queer kids, you know, all members of the two-spirit LGBTQIA plus community are at risk in these schools. And so we're coming together. There's a whole bunch of different groups. Um, some of them are Uplift Black, Parents Against Racism, Simcoe County, and Parents of Black Children. And the organization that I founded with my mom, Local Allies, were supporting these important advocacy groups to really hold schools accountable to make sure that the kids are safe in these environments where they should be able to learn and grow versus um, having to face really awful, awful circumstances of bullying and also teachers not understanding institutionalized racism and things like that. So this is a great reckoning, you know, that we're in. So I'm really honored and, um, and humbled to be participating in this kind of work and absolutely invite all of our listeners to keep doing the work themselves. One of the things that Antrice and I have talked about in the past is that we need to keep self-educating. So wherever you are in your journey, you know, your personal anti-racism journey, your anti-black racism journey, as you broaden your perspective on gender and expression, um, and also the dynamics of men and women and non-binary folks, um, keep self-educating because you are so important in this world and you absolutely make a difference in your community. Wow. 
Um, yes, and for someone who might be new to our podcast, this is something that we've talked a lot about in the past and we want to continue having conversations about. And I just want for anyone who's listening and who might feel a little bit uncomfortable in this space at all to kind of reckon with the fact that feeling shame for something is actually a really powerful feeling, in my opinion, because when some sort of shame arises, that's when you actually are in tune with yourself and you feel like something isn't quite right here. There's something here that doesn't sit right with me. And so shame is actually the first step to growth because that's how you can start to recognize like what isn't what is it that isn't aligning with me and how am I not maybe aligned with my values and how could I learn more and how could I do better and so starting from a place of shame and saying okay well now I know this I know I want to you know do something differently or learn something more about myself in the world and then that's where you start just educating yourself and it is such a powerful journey it's going to be uncomfortable many times um, but it's in that discomfort that we grow and so you know watching you Robin in on this journey and seeing how much you just take up space and how you want to learn more and when you jump on opportunities you told me about this opportunity to speak at this rally and I'm like yes I'm so excited for you and can't wait to hear how it all goes and thank you for asking all of us to really step up to this game um, and to continue to ask questions and want to learn more and create more space for everyone to flourish in this world. Yeah. Thank you so much. And it's, it's something that like, you know, I get it. Like we're all tired. You know, we're all exhausted. Life is very demanding. (laughs) There's so much to learn. You know, there's so much to do. Um, But one of the things that's so beautiful about this kind of work, which, you know, I feel the same way about climate climate justice work, is that you just have to start wherever you can. You know, you don't have to do it all. Nobody's expecting you to do everything, but you can do what you can do. So, you know, stretch a little bit outside of your comfort zone. You know, start building in new habits, start learning more, um, and just keep going. And one of the things that Andres and I have been talking about is that, you know, this time that we're in where people are, you know, a little bit tapped out, there's a lot going on in the world, there's a lot going on in our families, that we want to provide more space for learning and growing and being intentional with our lives. And that's one of the reasons why we decided that this would be the last episode of this year. We'll be coming back in to continue this season in the new year. But, you know, we want to give everyone an opportunity to slow down. And so, you know, today I'm really excited to to talk about um, as we move into the holiday season, how we can be intentional around the holidays. And then we'll get into a great conversation with Garrick from EcoStylist, uh, specifically around sustainable fashion and the choices that we make when we're shopping. Um, but to use this time to be really intentional with how we interact with the things that we bring into our life. And also, you know, when we're shopping for the holidays, what is it really about? It's about expressing your love for the people you care about and it doesn't have to be through things you know what I mean like it doesn't have to be with a physical gift that's wrapped there's so many ways that we can show love and Therese what are some of the ways that you like to like show love if it's like a holiday season and you're kind of preparing for the gift giving frenzy that sometimes happens how do you approach it well that's a really good question and I just first want to say that just to hone in on your message of, of slowing down and creating space. I think it's something that, especially around the holiday season, that's ultimately what it's all about, to spend more time with our family and, and loved ones. But we're so stressed out and feel like so many things have to line up and all these has, things that we have to bake and cook and buy and, you know, all these things. Um, 
And so for me, especially as the years, you know, go by and I'm growing, going further into my own journey, but also getting older and, and I guess gaining more perspective and talking as I'm the oldest person in the world. But, you know, like as my journey goes on, I have a new perspective on things. And I say this as a gifter. Like, I don't know if you know about the love languages, um, but my love language is gifting. Um, a big part of it is like, showing my appreciation and my love for people by giving them things that I think they're really going to appreciate. So when I was growing up, I loved Christmas for that reason, because I had this opportunity to buy all these things for people that I loved. But, you know, granted, I had like n- not really that much money. So it was all kind of cheap stuff. Um, so, you know, I'm definitely guilty of having bought things for people that they probably don't need. Um, and And trying to like, you know, again, just flip the narrative on, you know, what does it mean to, to give love? Um, and yes, that can definitely show up as, as some sort of product or a gift uh, in a material form. But there are many ways that we can be more intentional, especially if we start earlier and slow down and do some research. We can we can shop for brands that are more are sustainable and ethical and really take care of their people. Uh, we can maybe find something secondhand if we're lucky. It can be hard sometimes when you're gifting, but if you start early, you can do that. And then also some things that I love to give is things that are actually, you know, that can be consumed. So if someone drinks wine, it can be a nice bottle of wine or it can be food or it can be a candle because you can burn candles. Um, So thinking of things that are not necessarily going to add on to the waste mountain that this world currently is, but that can be circular and keep going back and be appreciated nonetheless of the person you've given it to. Definitely. Yeah, I love, um, as I was becoming, you know, going further on, on the sustainable journey for myself, I loved using, um, gifting opportunities to give experiences. Like I remember there was one Christmas when I gave my mom tickets to see a modern dance performance at the Joyce theater in New York city. And that experience has last, like we still talk about it. It is just, it's a lasting gift and it's not just like a tchotchka or a cute thing or it's funny, you know, so I got it for you. It's like something that was so meaningful between us. Um, so I love experiences as gifts. And something else that I've done with our family, because Justin's family is much bigger, he has many aunts and uncles, and you know, so we've got lots of cousins, is we make a donation in the family's name. So, you know, something that's like deeply personal to us as a family, we make a donation so that the whole family is honored and we do it in Justin's grandmother's memory. Um, and, and that's something that we've done before, which has also been really powerful. And it also provided this beautiful moment of reflecting on, you know, one of Justin's ancestors, um, and a time to, to kind of come together. It's like putting our hearts together around something, you know? So there's so many different ways to show love over the holiday season. Um, so it's just something to think about as you head into however you celebrate, whatever, you know, holiday you celebrate as a family, um, as yourself, that there's so many different ways to approach how you show love for people. And one of the things I want to touch on too, is that, that question of like, why do we feel the impulse of a gift specifically as the thing that has to show our love? And I look at that as like the way that our economy is structured is to protect the health of the economy, not necessarily the health of people. So we are incentivized to buy things to bolster the economy sometimes and maybe even often at the detriment of our own health 
and the health of the people around us and the health of the people who make those things and you know at the detriment of the health of the planet so being intentional around gifting it's a huge opportunity for us to dig deep and to go further down our own regenerative journey and to buy things that support brands that pay their workers a fair and living wage that are transparent about their supply chain and that are using materials that are kinder to the earth as we use those materials. So this is a really amazing opportunity for us to not just kind of like go along with the rush of the holidays, because sometimes it feels like panicky for me almost like, oh my gosh, I have to buy a bunch of things and send them in the mail quickly. And it's like, how can I slow down and be really intentional with how I show love for the people I care about? And also I think, there's an opportunity to rethink the gift itself because I remember reading this in a book. I don't remember what book now, but gifting is ancient. Like it was actually before we even had money, people gifted things. Um, and so the gift is sacred in many ways. And if you think about special, special things that have been gifted to you in the past, it's usually harder to get rid of because you have an emotional attachment to that thing. Uh, and so there is you know, a lot of beautiful things also in gifting. And it is a beautiful way of showing your love to another person. Um, but what you just touched upon where like there is this frantic moment of like having to buy to kind of support the economy. And like, it's not about what you give, but how many things you give. And it has to be all these packages under the tree if you celebrate Christmas. Um, but taking a step back from that and saying to yourself, you know, like what, what, why why am I gifting um, and and how can we think differently about you know the circularity of things I think maybe you know it can be something that be, gets passed on and maybe it's more about the ceremony around the gifting part itself than what the actual thing is um, that's another way of looking at it right and I think I just want to say this to someone who's listening and may be kind of new to this and it was really hard for me in the beginning and still is sometimes because there is this hype and this excitement around giving a lot of stuff to people and getting something new but I think everyone can kind of, you know, agree on that as soon as the gifting part is over, that hype fades pretty fast and then everything just back to normal. You have a pile of paper that has to be taken care of. Um, and so I think, you know, actually sitting with that and, and like allowing yourself to really reflect on like, okay, this is a little bit uncomfortable. I might be disappointed that we don't have a lot of gifts this year or whatever it might be that comes through to you and sit with that and then, you know, go a little deeper and say, well, if, if that disappointment does arise and or, you know, like I feel like something's going to be missing, what else can we fill that void with? And maybe that's love and maybe that's just more intention and maybe that's just more presence, more being here for all of it. Um, and if we don't feel so uh, pressured to buy all these things and run around town and go crazy shopping, we can just be here and, and spend more time together. So, yeah, it's a beautiful time of the year. I do love the holidays and probably always will. Um, but definitely things have shifted over the years and in only the best ways. So, yeah, we're excited to leave you with this. Baby. We're going to be missing you. Um, we'll be back in early 2022 with a really exciting episode. So def definitely stay tuned for that. And in the meantime, we have one final really good episode for you. Robin, do you want to tell us about Garrick? Yeah, so I had an opportunity to speak with Garrick from EcoStylist. And it's a great conversation because we really get into sustainable fashion, what makes a fashion brand sustainable, and 
why is it so hard for so many brands to actually live up to the expectations that we might have as consumers and citizens who want brands to do better? And so we really get into how we can be intentional around what we buy and who we're buying from. Um, a little bit about Garrick, as the founder of EcoStylist, he has created a resource for us to see the brands that have been vetted with a very thorough list that he uses to make sure that brands are actually transparent and accountable, sustainable and regenerative, and that they're paying their workers a fair and living wage. Um, he got hooked on sustainable fashion after a chance meeting with a founder of an ethical brand, and that led him to do countless hours of research into how truly unsustainable so much of the fashion industry is. When he emerged from all this research, he had this question burning in him, can I put together stylish outfits with only sustainable brands? Once he knew that he could, he wanted to help other people to dress like they give a damn. And that is how EcoStylist was born. Garrick is also an international speaker on sustainable fashion. He has a degree in conflict analysis and resolution from GMU and an MBA from University of Iowa. And he was just a joy to talk to about both the big picture things of the systems of fashion and how the whole you know system is structured, but also the nitty gritty of what we could do when we are going out and trying to buy something new. What can we look for and how can we do that well? So a really good conversation to end this year with as we head into the holiday season and Robin and I are really looking forward to starting 2022 with you. So take care, spend a lot of time with yourself and with your loved ones and um, ask yourself those deeper questions as we exit 2021 and head into yet another year. We send you so much love and so many blessings and so much strength and courage on this journey that we're on together. And we hope to see you back in the new year. And we want to say thank you so much to everybody who has supported our show. We appreciate our sponsors and our listeners. You know, the listeners are so inspiring to us. So thank you so much for your support. And thank you to everybody who has subscribed. It really makes a difference the more people that subscribe to our show. It's the analytics and the robots at, at work that really help to get our show seen. So to everybody who subscribed, to everybody who has shared an episode with a friend or family member, Thank you so much. We hope you have an amazing holiday season and we cannot wait to come back and see you again in the new year. Hi, Garrick. We're so excited to talk to you today. Thank you for coming on the Hey Change podcast. Hey, Robin. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So you are all about sustainable fashion and it's been really interesting for me as someone who's newer to the climate action movement to learn all about sustainable fashion. So why don't we start with sharing a little bit about you? What brought you to sustainability and what led you to start EcoStylist? Yeah, uh, it was definitely a non-linear journey. You know, I think a big lesson for me from this whole experience has been, you know, to set goals for yourself, but then be okay with the fact that they're not going to go the way you think at all. <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, and that's, that's like totally okay. So, uh, yeah. So for me, my journey, I think it's really been one. So human rights and you'll see this kind of, so, it, you know, with eco stylists, human rights and the environment are equally important when it comes to, you know, thinking about they're kind of our, 
of, about you know the brands we work with and 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 what they're doing well. And that's sort of true for me, you know, in my story. I think I really started more with on the human rights side of it, and then and sustainability was always there for me as well. So yeah, so kind of for me, it was like I started by kind of a roundabout journey trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I really gravitated towards peace studies in college. So I had a yeah, I actually did that as a program. I did a conflict analysis and resolution program. And I had all these like really amazing professors that, you know, where we learned about, you know, a really hard topics like, you know, like war and genocide and things. And, but we learned, but the, it's a really optimistic field actually, because it, it looks at all of these things and says like, you know, maybe instead of like doing things the way we've been doing them, we should think about the fact that like, we're smart people and like, there's better ways to solve these problems, right? Like it really looks at it from a problem solving perspective. And that's what really drew me to that field was I was like, Hey, this is kind of fascinating that there's people thinking about like, how to solve human conflict differently and not without killing each other, you know, and that was really mm-hmm. um, like a really interesting and inspiring field. And so, so I kind of got into the human rights sides of things and then um, yeah, like post-college um, didn't really find work in that field without a master's degree. Cause I was living in, in DC area and a lot of people there have master's degrees and, um, and I just wasn't quite ready for a master's degree. So it kind of, yeah, so I kind of found myself wandering around and sustainability was always kind of important to me growing up, you know, like I was always, into like recycling and uh, hiking. And, uh, you know, my dad really, uh, I think helped me build an appreciation for that by taking me to national parks and, and camping and things. And so, yeah, so it kind of all came together for me where um, I started making like drastic changes in my life when I realized I, that, you know, things weren't falling into place the way I expected. Like I wanted a career in impact and it wasn't happening. And so, yeah, so I just started to make changes, like quit my job, got a new job, quit that job, went to grad school. Like I started making changes faster. Like I learned how to make them. And then I was like, I don't need to wait to make them. Yeah. And so in grad school, I went for business. And at that point I, I, I knew that what I did know is that there were like, I had peace studies as my background, then business. And I figured like, you know, this is a good blend for a social enterprise, but I didn't know when I would do it. Cause I thought starting a social enterprise would be hard and like require a lot of money. And I had all these like, like ideas that were wrong. I just didn't know enough about how you do that. So yes, yeah, so I was in grad school and then I started Eco Stylist while I was in grad school. And so basically when I finished, I just went full-time in because I was like, I realized like, okay, actually this is possible to do now. And I just want to work on this full-time and, and not do anything else. So, um, cause that's really where my passion lies. So yeah, so that was kind of where it came together for me. And I, I guess a quick anecdote on that is like, you know, when I first started Eco Stylist uh, as a side project in grad school, it was really just a fashion startup. And then you know, it was really meeting, meeting uh, the owner of one of these brands that we now work with actually um, that, in, that where I learned about sustainable fashion. And then I did like a deep dive into it. So that was about, that was like four years ago and I did a deep dive into it. And then I pivoted the entire startup because once I was aware of that, that was, that was when the lights kind of, that was when everything kind of came together. It was like, okay, like there's a startup I'm building on the side that I'm just kind of, you know, testing. Now I realize it could have a social impact, you know, so we changed the whole thing. And then I was full in, then it was like, okay, you know, this could actually make a difference in the fashion industry. And so, uh, yeah, that's kind of how it all sort of came together. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think it's so interesting how, you know, it's probably true for a lot of us that we don't have a linear path and that sometimes we have this, like, I'll, I'll speak from personal experience. I definitely have a pull. I have this like pull. It's a passion. It's a desire. It's like this thing I want to create in the world. It's, you know, the world I want to move towards. And I don't know exactly how I'm going to get there. And like, that's where I am right now in my life, actually, with some of the platforms I'm working on. So I totally get that, that, you know, when you have that passion, desire, it's okay to try things and then blow them up. 
and then try things and then blow them up. Like quitting your job multiple times, it takes a lot of bravery to do that kind of thing, to, you know, take those steps. But it's amazing that, you know, you, you had the gall to take that journey and it led you to where you are today, which is, which is amazing. Another thing you mentioned, just as a side note that I think is so interesting, I've been thinking about this a lot um, just for my son, is how much history do we really need to know in order to change the future? And you mentioned the classes that you were taking, you know, it's like learning about the way things that have been done. But if we want to change the future, like I'm curious about what your thoughts would be like, how much do you think we need to know about the past in order to change the future? Is it like vital that we know everything or should we be like, screw it? And like, just be forward thinking. What do you think about that? That's a really interesting question. Having, uh, having got that one before, I, I'm certainly not a historian by any measure or have a lot of expertise in that area. But I, I, my personal opinion about that would be that it's some combination of both. Because, right, because it's like, because if we don't know, yeah, because if we're not learning from the past, then we're probably, you know, going to repeat it without realizing it. Like thinking that we're doing things a new way um, when really like, that's already been tried <laughs> and, you know, um, and we just weren't aware of it. Um, or so I think, I think a combination of both is really valuable um, is my personal opinion. I think, cause I think I'm seeing that too, where like a lot of things. Um, yeah. Like I see a lot of things today where I think people don't necessarily have awareness of the past, you know, like one, mm-hmm. um, you know, a really good example would honestly be the starry eyed way that we view like made in America looking backwards I think mm-hmm. is really, it was one of those that lacks historical context because it's like people, people view, they always view it from this lens. It's, it's sort of gotten this like mythical lens where it's like, oh, it was such a great time. But the, what the lens isn't accounting for is like, we had sweatshops here. We had rivers, like our rivers were in terrible shape. Like, I don't know if people remember that. And so essentially like, and a lot of this was from the fashion industry as well as other industries, but um, a lot of it was, was textiles and uh, essentially like more, I mean, it's more complicated than that, but essentially we exported those problems. And I just think like, that's an example where like history is really important because if we don't know our history about that, then it's easy for us to say like, you know, to just have this like glorified impression of what made in America was or is and not think about the challenges, you know, that, that people face then and that are still, still important and we're still facing now. Yeah, totally. That's so true. And I think that's true. I mean, with, you know, with critical race theory as well, that's another example of, I think there's a lot of people who want to sweep the past under the rug and not face things as opposed to being really honest with what our history is so that we can move forward properly. So that's so true. Thanks for going down that rabbit hole with me. Cause I just, I think about these things with my son. I'm like, how much does he need to know about the past because a lot of you know in school I remember history just was always about who was conquering who what war was happening and what general and I'm like I want to know how everyday people live so that's for another conversation but um yeah I think that's a great point that it's it's definitely like so many things it's a yes and not an either or so Mm -hmm. let's talk more about sustainability when it comes to the word sustainable I think that you know my understanding is that definition kind of is broad and there are no specific regulations around that term. Who can use it? What does it mean to be truly sustainable? Why don't we go into that space and you know, tell us a little bit more about your understanding of sustainability? Yeah, definitely. No, it's a great question because there's, there is no, you know, universal definition, obviously. And so, so we have this conversation a lot because even, you know, people who believe in uh, sustainability may not uh, like they may not fully align with 
or understand our definition, for example. And so we have this conversation a lot. But yeah, our definition, we've essentially aligned ourselves with Remake because um, we partnered with them to use to use their criteria for researching brands. And, and we really felt like that was the right move. There's a lot of reasons, but primarily because of alignment, like their their definition of of what sustainability is, is really like half people, half planet, right? It's really, and I think, you know, that's where we have the most conversations is some people don't understand how people factor into sustainability, but we believe very strongly that, you know, that those two should be related and not separated, you know? And it's like, you know, because it's like, I think it's really unfair for like to, I don't know, to only consider the environment when, you know, because we have to consider like who we are and where we are when we say those things, you know, it's like, so it's like if I live in America and I have all of these privileges um, and I'm like, oh, I want my shirt to be made with organic cotton and like, you know, I want it to have like a carbon neutral footprint, but I'm not thinking about like the person in like Bangladesh who made that shirt. I think that's like not okay. You know, I think it's mm-hmm. like we we can't, you know, and it's it's also also the fact that, you know, garment workers also receive the the brunt of the environmental impacts. You know, it's like they're the ones living in the places where the rivers are being poisoned, like directly by the indus- that industry. And so it's like, yeah, so like they're basically it's like, so if we're going to talk about sustainability, we have to talk about the people. That's that's our perspective. That's what we believe. And um, yeah, so really when we talk about, we're trying to put out a definition that includes like bold action on the environment and on, you know, and fair and for workers, like the workers' wages, um, like transparency so that these people are not invisible, so they can't be exploited, you know, um, like all of these things, like basically workers' rights and the, you know, the rights, like the environment and the planet. So that's really the definition we want to put forward and that we think, is where it should be. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of brands, I think, don't take in the human element. And it's really good to know, I think, as someone who is learning more and more about, you know, quote unquote, sustainable fashion, that a lot of people use that term pretty loosely and, you know, very freely. And their sustainable doesn't necessarily mean ethical. And, you know, you talked about that human element. And I know, like, in California, you know, with a lot of work from the remake community and others that, you know, we were able to help pass Senate Bill 62, which shifts the way that garment workers work in the United States. And I think a lot of people don't realize that even within the U.S., you know, those sweatshop-like conditions have persisted. And so we're starting to make change with, you know, with legislation to protect garment workers, the people who make our clothes. Um, But we still, in a way, need to be on the lookout for, brands that use that sustainable, you know, headline that really don't take in that human factor. Um, I noticed on your website, you said nine out of 10 brands fail your criteria. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's a progressive criteria, which is where it should be, right? Like, I think one, that was another reason that we really gravitated towards, towards working with Remake is they have this really forward-looking view of the fashion industry you know so when they take the criteria they're not just saying like you know uh what does a brand look like that's doing like okay or good right now right they're looking at like like what does a brand look like that's doing really good right now and also like into the future like so it's really it's a really forward looking and i think when we talk about the fashion industry, like we want to change it, right? Like we need, we need, like universally, we need brands to do better. You know, like uh, sure, some brands are doing really good. Like that's you know the one out of ten that passed, right? But like, but the, I guess the, the point being, like seeing how the majority of brands are like falling really, really short. 
you know, I think our forward looking criteria is really important to, to kind of be like, this is what we're defining as sustainable and we need you guys to catch up, you know, uh, to mm-hmm. the brands. And so, um, yeah, so basically it's, yeah, it's just really um, brands have to earn that. And it's like, you know, um, living wages is a huge part of it. It's like, it's basically 10% of the points um, more or less. Like, so it's like, yeah, so that's, that's where, that's where it comes in. So you can start to see where like, it's, if a brand's not like committing to living wages, not, they don't have like major sustainability, like initiatives and goals and like impact on those things, it becomes really hard for them to pass. Right. Like, so, and you can imagine like most brands aren't doing that, like those two things I just mentioned. And so, yeah. And then obviously transparency is about 15% of it, you know, and a lot of brands still aren't doing that where they're not sharing, you know, where their factories that sew the clothes are, but also the rest of their supply chain is also part of those 15 points. So it's also like, we don't just want to know where it was sewn. We want to know like, where's the cotton from and, you know, where was it dyed and all of that. And where was, where was the, was the fabric spun? So basically, yeah, but it's, it's setting a, a vision for where you want the fashion industry to be. Um, and it's like, yeah. And I guess to give you kind of a more sense of that too, it's like, even when we filter down to brands that position themselves as sustainable and seem like really good fits, you know, it's less than half of them pass. Wow. Um, so yeah, so it's like, yeah. So, and then, and then, and then when you, when, the, when you think of outside of that, most of those brands just fail. Like it's just, so yeah, it's, um, so that's kind of where it is. And, and I think we feel comfortable. We feel like this is where the needle needs to be. And um, yeah. So I think we, we stand by it. <laughs> totally. I mean, you're asking brands to do better, which is what we all need to be doing. And it's interesting that idea of like having the initiatives in now that are helping to make a difference right now that are, you know, better than the average brand might be doing, but also having goals for the future that you can't just rest on like, okay, you know, we save this much water and we have got organic cotton and that's enough. Like there's gotta be goals. You have to keep moving forward because um, we're in, in a way it's like, we're in such a bad place, unfortunately in the fashion industry that being better than the average isn't even that good, <laughs> which is like, it's, it's tough, but at the same time, it's, there's yeah. some really amazing innovative brands that have really made some serious commitments that are leading the way. Um, it's awesome that you highlight them. So I'm excited for our listeners to, you know, to check out EcoStylist and see the brands that have been vetted by you and to get that deeper understanding of why these brands are really important for us to support and to know about. In terms of the greenwashing side, let's talk about that for a moment because, you know, you see brands that it's like the majority of what they offer is made conventionally and there's no transparency and there's nothing about the, you know, the fair wages. And then this little percentage of their brand is made sustainably. That to me feels like greenwashing, but I think it's like on the one hand, I'm glad to see that brands are starting to make any effort, but at the same time, I'm excited for the brands that are going all in that recognize the urgency of the changes that need to be made with a lot of like the time is running out. Like we need to have a lot of urgency in the changes that we make. So um, what about like, what is, what's going on there where brands are using that, that sustainable label in a way that's greenwashing. And especially think for our listeners, like, what are things that they should be taking into account and looking for to, so that they can have that personal flag of like, oh, this is greenwashing. This isn't actually that sustainable. Yeah, yeah, no. Green, greenwashing is a really important topic in the space. And I think it's definitely a pretty gray too. Like green, yeah, it's, it, it can be a pretty gray area in terms of like what, what we agree is greenwashing and what's not. But I think there's a lot of really interesting examples 
of it. And I think the one you brought up is, is I think a good place to start. Like with fast fashion, you know, I would argue that most, and, and you're right. Like it, there's always that pull where it's like, it's like, we're happy to see them doing some things good. And, and it's like, I don't want to completely negate that. But at the same time, you know, I would argue that most fast fashion initiatives in sustainability or greenwashing like across the board because they're refusing to address like some of their biggest problems. And so like, that, you know, like it's honestly, it's not even actually fair for us like to compare Zara, for example, to another brand in our criteria, because honestly, because Zara should be getting negative points for their business model, like right mm-hmm. off the bat, like even, cause the thing is it's not apples to apples, right? Like if you took Zara um, and you just took like, I don't know, one of our brands that passed, like you took like outer known or something, right? And you, you, you started to like compare them on different factors. Like you were like, okay, sustainable fabrics, you know, and like all these different things. And you were like, you know, A to B compare like how they're all doing. At the end of the day, even if like, let's say, let's say Zara got to a point where they were doing equal, like obviously that would be amazing. Like that's not what's happening. But if they were like equal to outer known on like all of those components, the one thing that would still be really different, right, would be their, would be their business model. Like they're still producing, you know, like what, like 400 million pieces a year. And they're not planning to slow that down. Like that is not in their business plan. Their business plan over the next 10 years is to increase production. So I think it's like, so I would argue that virtually all fast fashion is greenwashing for this primary reason of like, they, they, they can't ignore the elephant in the room, which is their business model. It just has to be like, it has to be addressed. Um, and so that would be, that would be my argument for that. I mean, I, but I could, I mean, like some people wouldn't agree with that, you know, for sure. And I think, you know, when it comes to other brands, you know, we've seen brands regress. We've seen brands like all over the spectrum, you know, like I think Everlane is a brand that, that kind of comes up a lot in these greenwashing conversations. Yeah. And we're, 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 they're one to watch though. Cause you know, I'm like, I'm optimistic that, that eventually they're, they're going to be in the right place. And I think maybe perhaps they're heading there. I don't, I'm not, it's kind of, I think it's can't quite tell for sure yet. Um, but the point is like, but over their history, you know, I think what you can't deny is that when they put forth this idea of radical transparency, it was a bit misleading. Um, especially when you compared it to brands like, like, I don't know, like some of the brands that we work with, um, I would argue are much more transparent and well, not, I mean, they are, it's not, it's not even like a position. And so it's like, it's, you know, it's like, so what is radical transparency? Um, you know, like we, like, you know, like brands, like, like known supply, like literally lets you meet the person who made your clothes. Right. Like, I think that's radical transparency, right? Like you, Mm -hmm. you get the garment, the name is on the tag. You look up the name on their website you can see a little bit about the person. You can thank them. Like you can send them a thank you message for making your shirt or your hat. Um, you know what I mean? Like that's, you know, or like, um, like Aska is a brand, uh, one of our certified brands that like, that tells you how much transparency they have. So they'll be like, we have, you know, 60% transparency on this shirt. And like, that may not look great, but they're being honest about it, you know? And they're like, yeah, we can't trace like right now we can't trace like the buttons or we can't trace like this and that at the moment, but we're working on it. And like, so like, that's what, like, it's that kind of stuff where I'm like, yeah, that's, that to me, that's radical transparency. And um, yeah, so anyway, these are just some examples. And we have seen brands regress too. Like the fact is businesses are still, you know, in, in America, like, uh, but also, I mean, other places too, but we're kind of, we've kind of led this idea of like businesses being only for profit. And, and so I think that's sort of, um, with that in mind, we've seen businesses regress. Like Alternative Apparel is a brand that uh, has been around for a long time and has been like regressing and it's hard to, some things we have to assume, but it's hard to imagine it's not financially motivated. I mean, they were purchased by Haynes like three years ago, three, four years ago. Um, and like, they've, they've been regressing. Like they're not, you know, like they're, they don't have like new initiatives they're not improving. Yeah. It's like, we always kind of got to be looking for, for brands that are doing good and like continuing 
to do better and want to do better. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point you made in terms of fast fashion, that the fast fashion model in itself is inherently not sustainable. It does not support that sustainable regenerative world that we need to be moving closer towards because our lifestyle habits around clothes is, you know, these, these garments need to be treated as precious. You know, each one is made by humans. And so this idea that you wear it a few times and then you get rid of it, whether that's donating it or tossing it or whatever it is, the fact of the matter is you're processing a lot of clothes in your own wardrobe and that lifestyle habit doesn't support a, a, a better world for us. And it's this interesting shift. I think that's just a really good point that these initiatives that fast fashion brands are making, even if they were, you know, as you said, com- like equal in terms of their production practices with a brand like Outer Known, that they inherently are not sustainable. I think that's very powerful to note. The other thing I just wanted to touch on is for anybody who, who doesn't know a lot about how clothing is made, what are those like, I kind of think of them as like checkpoints. Can we just go through them just to give some examples of like, there's the like, you know, the acquisition of the material and then like water use. And like, can you lead us through that a little bit? So we understand just how many different places a brand like Outer Known or, you know, a great sustainable brand would have to know about, you know, it's like, you can just get fabric and make clothes sustainably in your own little factory, but that didn't, that didn't just show up there magically. Like it came from somewhere. So yeah. Can you just lead us through sort of like what that process is? Yeah, sure. Like the first thing you'll see a brand do, right. is like, like, they'll be like, this is where we sew our clothes and, you know, we pay fair wages here and maybe our fabrics are certified and not to, like, just to be clear, like, that's good. Like, that's not bad. It's just like, but it's just like, there's, there's a part of the supply chain that's still in the dark there. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think, and certifications is one of the way the brands actually address that, but yeah, it's like, so let's just say, okay, let's say, let's say it's natural fibers, right? So let's say it was cotton, right? Like first, you know, first the cotton's grown somewhere, <laughs> you know, and oftentimes with these supply chains, they're not, some brands try to keep it localized within like a certain, but generally speaking, it's not. So, mm-hmm. you know, so the cotton is probably grown, you know, in one country, you know, and then, and then it's shipped off to be processed and, and turned into yarn. And then it might be like, it could be dyed nearby or it could be dyed somewhere else. And then, you know, um, and then eventually that fabric goes to like, so it just, it goes through like these several processes before it even gets to like, by the time it gets to uh, like the factory that's sewing it, you know, it's a roll of fabric, the right that's been dyed. And so then they're like cutting and sewing it. Um, but it's had like, it's had several stages to get there and maybe mm-hmm. in different places. And so, um, yeah, so a really transparent brand will share all of those stages. Um, like they'll be like, you know, cotton came from here and it's like fair trade cotton perhaps, or, you know, and then they'll be like, you know, the, yeah. And then like these factories in this intermediate section were like, were certified or they'll, you know, they'll share, or they'll just share more information about them. I mean, certifications is, I should say is one way. It's not the only way, right? It's just an easy way though. It is an easy way for a brand to signal like, Hey, you know, these factories are safe depending on the certification, like, or the people who there were paid fairly, et cetera. Right. It's a, it's a pretty easy way for brand to signal that, but brands can also just share the information. They don't have to have these certifications. I think that's just, there's just a lot more there. And that's obviously that's more complicated than, you know, I think the average person wants to know probably about, or wants to dig, I should say into their clothes, but, but obviously they would want to know, you know, like, 
it, you know, quickly like that, that those things are being done right and in, in, in the right way. Yeah, totally. And I think, I mean, one of the things that I love about finding a brand that I can trust is that it takes the guesswork out of it. It's like, if I know, okay, this brand, they, they're doing a great job. I don't have to think about it anymore. It takes it off of my plate of having to investigate and they've already done the legwork. Um, and I just think it's really valuable to understand that it's not just about that factory that is actually like taking the, you know, the rolls of fabric and sewing the clothes that every step of the way in the shipping and the growing of the cotton or whatever the fabric is, the material, that there's humans involved. And so not, not only are the practices that are being done, you know, with the material becoming a garment, that is, is something that needs to be, um, you know, have transparency around it. It's also the humans who are involved in all those interactions. So it's, it's awesome to have, you know, to have a resource like your, your platform, you know, to be able to go on EcoStylist and see how brands are measuring up and know that, okay, I don't have to think about it. They've done the work. It's really great for us. It's really great. So I'm, I just really appreciate what you do. One of the things I wanted to touch on was where are the men in sustainable fashion? Because there's a lot of women's wear brands and there's a lot of, you know, I see a lot of women in, involved, um, but, you know, tell us where are the guys? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. So we, we actually started as only like focused only on menswear. This is kind of an interesting anecdote there. And like eventually, I think it was uh, it was like eight, nine months ago, roughly, that we that I think that we added we decided to just to add women's clothes and just make the site like for everybody. And yeah, because we were kind of we were we were kind of in this niche first because well, just because there wasn't we felt like there wasn't exactly kind of what you're saying. Like we felt like there wasn't somebody addressing this issue of like of like you know, getting more men involved in the space and, and also making it easy for men to shop sustainably because like without a resource focused on that, you know, it like, it's incredibly tedious, right? Like, it's like, you have to, you have to research brands. You'd have to know, you have to know like which, you know, it's like, which, cause imagine you're trying to put together an outfit. You're like, where do I go for shoes? You know, and that's even different types of shoes. Where do I go for sneakers, dress shoes? Like, you know, where do I get a blazer? Like, where do I get a shirt? So we just thought like, okay, well, if we make a resource, we can make this easy for men to get involved in the space. And so, yeah, so we kind of trucked along that way for, you know, two, two and a half years. And then, and then, um, yeah. And then broadened out because just because it made, just because it made a lot of sense, like a lot of our, even then a lot of our, like we were still about half our users were women. A lot of reasons for that. One of them being that with shopping in the U.S., a lot of times, like a lot of times there's a woman helping a man make a decision. And so is it reality? And so, you know, whether that's like a partner or a sibling or a friend, right? It's like, it's often the case. Um, and there's part of the reason being that this has been a space where men haven't felt a high degree of confidence. It's part of the reason for that. Like they don't necessarily feel super confident making those decisions. The reason the, the reason for why there aren't as many men in the single fashion space, I think is an interesting conversation because I think... I think it's sort of anchored in something that's been a trend here, but I also want to point out, but I think that that trend is changing, right? And so I think the primary reason, so you'll see, so sustainable fashion, um, I guess kind of like fashion itself, but but I think it's also its own thing. It's a space that's like led by women um, in many ways, right? Whether like through um, like participation, activism, like creating like solutions, organizations, right? Like I think women, like women are leading the space. And what's interesting is there's a, there's a really interesting pockets of sort of hidden brain about this where they talk about how uh when spaces are led by women sometimes men are afraid of those spaces because mm -hmm. um because it threatens their masculinity and mm -hmm. it's a very it's only a it's only and that's this is only a male thing like women the reverse is not true so women don't flee spaces because their femininity is um 
challenged, right? That doesn't, that doesn't happen. But, but this happens for men where, where their masculinity is threatened and they, and they flee spaces. And that's been, but I, I, I really believe that that's more of a, like the research on that is more, it's more historical looking. And so I really, I really feel optimistic that that's changing. Like, I think that that has been the case. Um, there's really interesting examples of that, like nursing, right? As a profession, nursing used to be all men. Um, and then more and more women starting getting into the profession. And then I think what most of us have probably experienced now is that it seems like a, like a, like a career that's mostly women. And that's because men fled the space basically. And now, I mean, I think now we're seeing the reverse where we're just, where more men are, are entering the space and they're not like, they're not, you know, they're not feeling like that's not a good career choice for them just because women are right. Which is, which is great because that's how it should be. Right. Like there shouldn't be this, um, this like weird energy around that. Right. It's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so I really think we're moving in the right direction, but I think I bring that up because I do think that's an important part of the story um, with this, because I think it's, you know, it's like, you know, similarly, it's like, it's like, if you have a career in fashion, it's also one of those careers where, where whether you're a man or a woman, like, you know, you, you may not be taken seriously, honestly, like it, it's still, I think that's changing, but it's also been one of those careers where people are like, oh, you know, it's not a real job or it's not a serious industry. Um, and obviously we know that that's not true. Um and so, yeah, but I think there's sort of all these perceptions, you know, and I think all these perceptions are changing, but I think they sort of explain um, some of these differences we see. Now, on the good side, like, I think, um, you know, when you, in all the surveys and research, right, like men and women, like they care about these issues roughly equally, right? Because so, like everybody cares, like people care about, um, you know, they, we all care about like the environment and like human rights. And so, yeah, so I think like, I feel really encouraged that, um that we can change this space. And honestly too, like, I think also a lot of women I'm sure are like helping men get involved in the space too, you know? Cause like, like I mentioned, like on our site, we were seeing all these women helping men make these decisions and it's like, they're, yeah, they're helping like men, like support these brands and then learn about the brands. And then, and then, you know, and then that guy's probably going to go purchase from these brands himself. Right. And maybe like share one of these brands with one of his friends. And it's, you know what I mean? So like, I think, I think that's important to acknowledge too, that like, while, while the numbers may be, you know, yeah, well, it may be obviously like mostly women now. I think women are helping to like, you know, diversify the space and grow it. Um, and they're just helping to grow it in general. So I think, yeah. So I think I feel really uh, encouraged by, I think, what we're going to see in the space and what we are seeing. Yeah, totally. That makes so much sense to see. It's like that big picture view of, because it's something I, I think about a lot is, you know, is, is male, female dynamics in terms of gendering and what has been been created in the past as socially acceptable spaces for men and for women in this very, um, it seems very like zero sum, you know, it's very, it's very binary, very divided. And we're seeing much, so much more integration. And, you know, we're seeing more, I love seeing brands that have, you know, a, a, uh, gender non-conforming section that is, you know, these are clothes for everybody. Um, and that's really important and, and powerful. Um, and it's so interesting I definitely have been on that journey of trying to help my husband find clothes that were sustainable and well-made and things that were his vibe. And it was this whole like, oh my gosh, we were down the rabbit hole trying to find brands. And if I had known about you at the time, it would have made my life so much easier. So it's so interesting. I think you're really right that. So from a big picture, I like to think that we're in a space where both male energies and female energies are balancing and that we're able to be more fully human because men being, you know, leaving spaces because it might be an affront on their masculinity, it doesn't allow men to be fully human. They don't get to live the fully human experience, which is we all have male and female um, energies in us. That's just how it is. 
And so, you know, for women to be in a space where there's been such a movement of women sort of taking their power and like really living into and embodying um, what, you know, having more access in the world um, that we can help to show the way in some ways for to bring more men into this conversation and to show that, you know, fashion is this thing that, you know, it's, it's an outer expression of what's going on inside of us. And it's this beautiful thing. It's not the most important thing, but it's an important aspect of how we express ourselves in the world. So, you know, the way that we ex express our identity is often the first thing that you see about someone. It's, it's what they're wearing and how they present themselves in the world. So, you know, fashion as this sort of superfluous thing that doesn't matter. I don't think that's true. I, it took me years to kind of come to that conclusion that, you know, this is not some silly little thing. Like this is how we get to express ourselves in the world. It's our living art on our bodies that we project. Um, so I really, I really like that idea of, um, you know, that we're creating more space in our culture for people to just, in a way, it's like be more powerful, that, that we're finding the power of men in these spaces, which I really appreciate. So, yeah, I think that yeah. that leads us to um, the last question that I, you know, sort of prepared for you today is, what do you see as the future of fashion? Yeah, the future of fashion is that I see is where is a future where like every brand pays living wages. Like, first of all, like that's just a thing that's across the board, you know, and it's just like something every brand does. And, you know, we no longer have to dive as deep, right. Or ask it like, right. Like it's, it's obviously it's going to take a while to get there, but like, but yeah, that's the future of fashion I think is where it's like that that's like the baseline. Like every brand just pays living wages across the board and it's not something that you necessarily would need resources like ours, you know, to, 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 to siphon through. Um, and I think, and, and also I think it's, it's obviously a lot more sustainable for the environment too, right? Like it's where, it's where brands are no longer, um, they've stopped consuming, like they've stopped consuming without limit, you know, so they've stopped, it's where it's no longer a world where clothes are disposable, right. Where we don't, we don't buy $5 t-shirts to wear them once, you know, it's like the things like, like a piece of clothing is like a considered decision. It's intended to last, like it's intended to stay in our wardrobes to be, you know, to be used um, because, you know, I think the, the impact of clothing is going to greatly reduce, right. It's going to like less water, less CO2, but at the end of the day, it's still like, I don't think it's ever going to be, um, it's going to be a long time. Well, I shouldn't say ever, but it's going to be a long time before like the production of clothing itself has a positive impact on the environment. Right. Like, like just right. Like, I mean, obviously you can like carbon offsets and things like this, but for the, for the production of clothing to have a positive impact on the environment itself, like it, it's probably, it's, I'm sure it's possible, but that's going to be a long time. So, so I think, you know, until we get like, we have to think about more uh, conscious like consumption, you know, as long as, because as long as there is an impact, even if it's better, um, you know, it's like, we got to buy less um, so that it's like, we're having that better impact and, and less frequently, you know, and um, yeah, and loving our clothes more. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's the future of fashion. I love that. Loving our clothes more. Definitely. It's not just a, a disposable thing. It's something that we can cherish. Yeah. Well, there, there actually is one more question. I lied. I was like, this is the last question. Actually, there's one more. Um, one of the things that we like to ask each guest is, are you a climate optimist? And if so, why or why not? Yeah, no, I definitely, definitely am. And I think, I think, you know, that's been my drive for doing this. Um, 
you know, for three plus years is that I really, I really believe that we can change, you know, change the industry and change the world. Right. And I think it's like, as individuals, we can't do everything, you know? So it's like, I like, we'll see these questions like, like, why did you like, well, it's like you said, I think what you said, like the, the whole yes and the not either or, I think that's like, so key. That's so, that's so on point. And that's so like for everything. Right. It's like, the fact is like, we, as individuals, like we have to choose, we choose our space. It doesn't mean you know, we can't do everything. Right. And it's like, it's not always about having the most impact. Sometimes it's about having the impact that makes sense to you. You know, like maybe you're the right person to work in fashion because you love it and you, you know, and you care about like people in the environment, whatever it is, you know, whatever the thing is for you, but it's like, it's like, we find our thing that we can do and we work on that. And we, you know, and we have our piece of it. And if, you know, obviously a, a lot of people working on their different pieces, like it all, it's all going to add up. We don't No one individual has to do, you know, everything or like, all the things like, and so I think, um, yeah, so I feel really optimistic because I think as, you know, as, um, as obviously like we're working on our piece and, um, and there's other people working on all kinds of pieces and there's other people in our same space working on the same problems. Right. And it's like, and it's that moment and that's awesome. And like that momentum is like what, you know, is I think what's going to change everything. And so like, I, yeah, I really believe that the future of not just fashion, like I'm, you know, we're also, we started a social enterprise because we believe that that's the future of business. Like it's, you know, it's like, I went back and forth. I had went back and forth. I was like, do we start a nonprofit? Do we start a social enterprise? And I chose social enterprise because, um, because I believe strongly in the idea of that. Like, I believe, you know, you see a lot of um, pessimism about like capitalism or our system and things like this. And I'm like, well, I think, I think social enterprises can change that. And so, yeah. So I think as we keep putting our energy into positive things and things that we think are the future, you know, we can really like create that change. And honestly, I think like, I think following climate positive news is like, you know, um, like a super important part of that story, you know, like obviously your listeners, like listening to your podcast is a great way to, to stay an optimist, like learn about, you know, learn about issues and, and how you can have a positive impact on those and, and, and taking care of yourself too. Right. It's like obviously an important part of that that journey. And I think, you know, another one that I really like is, um, I also think the, um, the how to save a planet podcast is another one that really supplements well, where it's also yes. like, that's also very optimistic, you know? And I think, I think, yeah, I think having these sources that we can, that we trust and that are great, like that can help us, you know, can help us stay a, a climate optimist. And so, yeah, I definitely, I definitely am. And, um, yeah, and I really support what you're doing. Thank you. Well, we're so glad to hear that. And thank you so much. And for our listeners, you know, please check out EcoStylist. It's such a great resource for both men and women and anyone living outside of gender, you know, gender norms. It's for everybody. And um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today, Garrick. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great, great to be here. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Hey Change podcast. If you'd like to support the show, please share this episode with friends, family, or someone in your network. Also, don't forget to give it five stars in the app so that we can reach more listeners just like you. We love hearing from our listeners, so please tag us when you share this episode on social media. We'd love to connect with you and learn about what you are doing too. You can find where to reach us in the show notes. Before you go, we'd like to invite you to pause and to leave you with this one final question. What does being an optimist in action mean to you?